Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word uh, that is so rich and addresses every area of our lives and our life together. This morning, as we give ourselves our minds to study a difficult topic, we pray that you'd be our guide, that you would give us uh, open hearts, a teachable spirit, ears to hear what you have to say to us that our church would be faithful, that we would honor you, and we would trust the commands that you've given to us as we live our life together. So Lord, send your spirit to instruct us and be our teacher now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we are returning this morning to our uh, study of 1 Corinthians, which we started last summer. We, in the summers, we always look at a New Testament letter. And last summer, we looked at 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters. This summer, we're going to look at chapters 5, 6, and 7. And if you weren't with us last summer, or maybe if you forgot last summer what we talked about 1 Corinthians, um, the issue that's happening in the Corinthian church was this is a church that was really divided. They had all these factions, these you know, party spirit going on within the church, and primarily because a number of the people said, you know, some people said, oh, you know, my favorite teacher is Paul, and I follow Paul, and other people said, my favorite teacher is Peter, and other people said, my favorite teacher is uh, Apollos, and other people said, I'm, you know, I don't follow any of those teachers, I follow Jesus only. And so everyone had this sense of, of um, pride in their own group that was tearing the church apart. The church wasn't this united body and family, but they were, it was divided into all these factions. And so what 1 Corinthians is about is where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing this letter, and he takes the gospel, and he says that the gospel is not just a doctrine that you believe in, but the gospel actually creates a whole culture in a community. You can have a whole community that's shaped by the, the, by the gospel, and, and, and it's not just a, you know, something you believe, it's something that shapes how you interact with one another and unites a community. Well, this week... Uh, this first week back in 1 Corinthians, we have an interesting application of that. This is the only example of a, an excommunication case in the New Testament. And you probably picked that up there in verse 1 where Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the Apostle Paul says that there are times, extreme circumstances, where it is appropriate for a church to remove someone from their membership roles. And say so you're not a member of this community any longer. You cannot be. Until you've dealt with something that's in your life, or you know, some sin that you're unrepentant of. And so the question is, you know, how does that go with the gospel, a gospel of grace, where we're, you know, we're a community where we talk about God's forgiveness, and there's no sin that can't be forgiven. And uh, how do you have, you know, something that's so uncomfortable and awkward as this is excommunication? And isn't that something that cults do? Is that something that, uh, that normal Christian churches do? Well, um, this passage has multiple answers to these questions, but, you know, one of the things that's been most interesting to me is we've just been studying um, the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, there are a lot of people who actually have questions about, you know, did Jesus and Paul teach the same things? 
I mean, were they, did they have the same vision about the gospel and about, you know, what it means to be a Christian? And it's really interesting, if you've been with us the last uh, few months, I think in the last three months, this is my third sermon on church discipline. And, you, you know, you might say, what's the deal? Why do you want to talk about that all the time? I don't want to talk about it. This is just the passages that are coming up. And so Jesus has a passage in Matthew 18 where he gives instructions about excommunication. And then here's Paul in the Corinthian church doing exactly what Jesus said. And then you go back in Matthew 19, and Jesus has these teachings on marriage and divorce. We just looked at that a few weeks ago. We get into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul quotes Jesus and has the exact same teaching. Just a few weeks ago, we had a sermon on singleness, where Jesus says that singleness is actually better than marriage. And then you get into 1 Corinthians 7, and what do you have? Paul says the exact same thing. And it's really, I didn't even plan this, but it turns out these, these chapters of Matthew that talk about church life together, now we're in 1 Corinthians and we're finding out that Paul has studied those words of Jesus and he's now implementing those teachings into the life of the church. And so we're looking at one example of that in the case of excommunication. And there's four interesting things, I think surprising things, from this passage we're going to learn about excommunication. This is what they are. First, Excommunication is humble. Excommunication is loving. Excommunication is eschatological. And excommunication is sacramental. Okay? So, first two, kind of words we probably all understand. Some of you might say, I don't know what eschatological or sacramental are. That's what we're going to learn about this morning. It's great. It's going to be, uh, it's really interesting though. So four things we're going to learn about excommunication. And you know, as we go along, we're going to find out that we're going to learn about a lot of other things as well. Because you know, that's how the Bible is. You study one thing and you learn all about the gospel and all, all kinds of things. So, so four things on excommunication. And the first one is this. Excommunication is humble. Now, I think that's a surprising statement because for most people, when they hear about something like excommunication, what they picture is a church that wants control of people's lives. Domineering, power, imposing in people's personal business, manipulative. And so the last thing that you would say about something like excommunication is that it's humble. If anything, it's, it's a power play. And... Um, and I think especially, you know, you'd read a verse like this, you, may, you might feel that. Look at it again in chapter 4, verse 17. That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, those might be troubling words. Obviously, Paul is having an emotional response to what's happening in the Corinthian church. And, you know, that language of the rod and things like that, it might be uncomfortable for you. Actually, the verse, the passage right before this, uh, um, it's in this verse. No, the passage right before this. Paul actually talks about how he's their spiritual father. He loves them as a father loves his children. And, you know, if any of you have had children that have been trapped in sin or been wayward, of course there's an emotional response. That means you love someone if you respond. If you're indifferent, if you're kind of emotionally cold to it, that means you don't love them. 
And so this is a sign of Paul's love. But, you know, in the last couple centuries in the Western world, this has been one of the major critiques of organized religion, is exactly things like this. And, we, you know, we think churches want to get control of people. And things like excommunication, they're trying to control people's lives. And so we have said, instead of, you know, like a church should judge people, we don't think that. We think we should be tolerant of all people. We should, um, uh, um, and you know, it, it, to some extent that's true. In a society, you have to have a level of tolerance of people that disagree with you, that believe different things, that believe in different religions. And as Christians, we have a lot of reason to be tolerant of all kinds of people because we say that all people have been made in the image of God. So there's all kinds of things that we can affirm about our neighbors, even if they disagree with us about what we believe about God or about the Bible or about Jesus. And so tolerance is um, a good thing, but we have to remember that tolerance is not love. Right? If you have a friend who says to you, yeah, I mean, I tolerate you. I'm perfectly happy to tolerate you. Do you feel loved by them? Do you feel affirmed? Do you feel embraced by them? No. They're actually keeping you at a distance. And, um, and in the church, we are not called to tolerate one another. Um, but even more than that, Paul says that being tolerant of everything doesn't make you humble, but makes you arrogant. This is, this is what Paul says. L- listen to these words. Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the, uh, among the pagans. And by the way, you know, the Roman Empire was a very tolerant society. It was very similar to ours. There was all kinds of religions. It was pluralistic. And everyone said, hey, listen, whatever your religion is, great. Um, I'm happy for you. Follow it. If it's working for you, do it. It's very similar to our culture. And he says, in this tolerant society, they had sin present in their church that not even the tolerant society. Uh, you know, this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. And, uh, and he says, uh, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. By saying, we can do whatever we want. We can sin however we want. It doesn't matter what the Lord thinks is a posture of arrogance. It's not a posture of humility. Um, to have someone in your church who's sleeping with a stepmom and you don't say to that, gross, that's gross. Why, you, know, you should have a response to why You can't do that. That's just wrong. It, it, by not having that response, you're not being tolerant. You're actually being proud. It takes humility to say, we live under Jesus' rule. And we cannot do whatever we want. And so, when a church says that there is a certain level of sin that can't be tolerated in our midst, we have to say, enough. It's not arrogance. It's not domineering. It's not, it's not a power play. It's simply honesty to the Lord. It's a humble spirit before the Lord. And, um, and the reason for this is because tolerance says... Everyone can do whatever they want. They're in charge of their own lives, including me. Grace says something very different. That's not what grace is. Grace in the church is to say, I have sinned greatly against God, and he's forgiven me. And I'm deeply humbled by that. 
And so I need his authority in my life. I want his authority in my life. That's what humility is, and that's what grace is. It's not just washing over sin and pretending it's not there. It's addressing sin and realizing that God forgives us. And so I want to submit to him. Okay? Now, we need to acknowledge, though, that it is possible for churches to be domineering, controlling, manipulative, and some of you may have been in churches like that, where you say, actually, the concerns that the Western world has about organized religion, I've experienced them, and it's nasty. And so that's why we need the second thing that we learn about excommunication. It's not only that it's humble, but also excommunication is loving. The motivation in excommunication has to be love. That's, that's the whole purpose of it. And you see that, you know, Paul tells the Corinthians to remove this man from this fellowship, but he tells them why. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of, of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's not because we want to get rid of him. It's because we've lost him and we want him back. The motivation is I want you. It's not because I want to get rid of you. It's because I want you, you're part of our family and we love you. And, you know, this is an extreme example where someone is being removed from their midst. And, you know, by the way, that's, that's not the normal way that the church deals with sin, right? In this same letter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. Love endures all things. Actually, Paul says in another place uh, to Timothy, who's a young pastor, he says, patiently endure evil. There are the vast majority of sins that are happening in the church are forgiven, we overlook, we're patient with people, they're growing in their faith, they're, trying, they're struggling with things, you know, all kinds of sins. And it's not like we're on a witch hunt looking for people who are, who are going to excommunicate. That, um, that's not the picture here. But there comes a time for tough love sometimes in a family, in any family. And I'll just tell you, as I can tell you from personal experience, Tough love in a family can be very effective. Um, as many of you know, as a young teenager, uh, I was 14 years old. I was in complete rebellion against my parents. I stole their car when I was 14, when I was drunk, and I totaled it. And I was doing um, circles around semi-trucks on the freeway at midnight. Uh, and uh, I ran away from home. I dropped out of school. They told me to do my homework. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen to anything you say. And so what do you think they did? They kicked me out. They said, you can't live here. I was 15 years old. You cannot stay in this house like that. And was that the right thing to do? Was that the loving thing to do? Absolutely it was the right thing to do. Was it heartbreaking for them? You know what Paul says here? You, shouldn't you mourn about your brother who's lost? You know how many nights of sleep they lost? They, they were in tears when I was brought home by the police. And they said, there is a time where this needs to stop. You cannot act this way in this family. And eventually, they actually had me picked up in the middle of the night. I was sent away to a boys' school on the other, in Western Samoa for a year and a half. And they didn't see me for a year. And I'll tell you, actually, two times they had me planned to they had planned to have me picked up you know, and, and taken away. And two times they canceled it because it was so heartbreaking to them. And they were looking for any glimmer of hope. Is there any chance that maybe he's changing? If they saw some chance of change, no, we don't want you to leave. But there came a time where it was clear that I was hardened and they had to send me away. And when they sent me away, what did it do? 
it saved my life. I got sent away to school, and I met the Lord, and my life was totally changed. And it was because they had the courage to do the hard thing. That's exactly what excommunication is. That's what Paul is saying, that sometimes you have to do as a family, and we are a family, and there comes a time where people are so hardened in their sin that we have to send them away, so they say, listen, we want you back. And did they want me back? Of course they wanted me back. This is an act of love. It was an act of love for my parents, and when a church does this right, when a church is mourning, and they uh, exercise this authority in a person's life, it is a deep, profound act of love as hard as it is. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, what does excommunication look like? I mean, uh, and we haven't excommunicated anyone in our church, so uh, we, we haven't been through that process. Um, but uh, in the next passage, actually, I didn't put this in your bulletin. Some of you might know this verse, and you may have questions about it. This is, this is what it says. Um, we're going to talk about it next week. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. So Paul's using his family language. He says, don't associate with anyone with the na- who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says that if someone is in total unrepentant sin and they have been removed from the community, you should not eat with them. Now, what does that mean not to eat with them? Well, we're going to talk about it later in the sermon that one of the things that Paul's talking about is the Lord's Supper. One of the main things that we do when we come together as a church is we eat in the Lord's presence. And this is one of the places that, you know, maybe some people would say what he's talking about when you're not supposed to eat with, some, with one of them is we should say that this person should not be admitted to the Lord's table. But there's also other places in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about eating in terms of, you know, dinner parties and more social gatherings. And so it's hard to say what he's talking about, but I think at the very least, this should mean that when someone is completely hardened against the Lord and has been called a Christian, and they're in complete rejection of everything of, of, of the way of what it means to follow Jesus, um, it is a profound thing when they turn away from this community. And it, we shouldn't be able to just kind of casually see them without some sense of, like, there's been great damage done. You know, um, an excommunication is not like, you know, someone found a new hobby, and, you know, we used to mountain bike together, and now you like basketball. And, you know, too bad. It's not like that. Excommunication is like a hand being cut off from a body. And the hand will die. And what happens to the rest of the body? It's in agony. And so there is something where we could say to someone, listen, I I just can't pretend like we're going to go on the same when there's been this drastic change in our relationship. And the reason for this is because the Bible says that our spiritual life is not an individual thing. You know, you don't become a Christian and you say, this is my personal relationship with Jesus. I've been saved into a family. I've been saved into God's family, into his children. And so it's going to have deep effects of my relationship with God, but it's also going to have deep effects in my relationship with people. And so um, that may... That, that may look like it's, it's not appropriate to eat with someone. But of course, what if someone wants to talk about their faith, right? What if they're like, I'm working through this, I have doubts, and I need someone to talk? Well, of course we're going to talk to them. We want the whole goal was for them to come back. And so 
we're looking for glimmers of hope to draw them in. And of course, we're going to draw them in with our love and the offer of grace and with forgiveness. And, you know, it's really interesting. In this, this case, um, you know, we just have this letter that Paul sends, and he says, you, you're just allowing this guy to sleep with his stepmom, and you're just, you know, patting him on the back and welcoming him. You should correct him. And if he's not going to change, you should kick him out of the church. But you know what happens? Second Corinthians, Paul writes them again, and it turns out they took his letter, and they did it. And they kicked him out. And then they really gave it to him. And in Second Corinthians, Paul says this, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And so what Paul's saying is, is they, they became quite harsh on this guy, and Paul's saying, listen, you're going overboard. The whole point is to win him back, and when he comes back, you're welcoming with open arms, and he should know that, that there is the forgiveness of sins on offer in this church from Jesus. Okay? Um, so the love of excommunication, it didn't just work in my case with my, with my parents, it worked in this case as well. And so this effect, repentance, comes from a third thing we learn about excommunication in this passage, is that excommunication is humble. It's not arrogant. It's, it's actually humble. Excommunication is an act of love. Third, excommunication is eschatological. Do I need to say anything more about that? Can we move on to the fourth point? <laughs> is that totally clear? Uh, I'll, okay, I'll say a few words. Uh, the word eschatological comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the last, last thing. And so eschatology is the study of the last things. And so um, the Bible says that the world's history is broken into two ages. This present evil age, which we're living in right now, and then the age to come. There's an age that is coming. And where God will come and set all things right in his creation. And we will live with him in his presence in his kingdom forever and ever. And the transition from this present age to the age to come is Jesus coming back as the judge of the whole world. And we will all stand before Jesus and give an account for the life that we've lived here. And, um, and of course, and, 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 and in that judgment, Jesus will rid the world of all evil and all suffering. And so that's why the Bible often celebrates, you might read, the, you know, the Psalms are always singing about how great it is when God comes as a judge. And the reason for that is because a judge in the Bible is not just like a guy with a black robe and a gavel. A judge is like a rescuer, is like, you know, Braveheart, coming to, you know, liberate the oppressed. And so we we're, can't wait for Jesus to come and to set things right in the world. And of course, that could be terrifying if I'm one of the things that he needs to clean up in the world and I have the evil that I'm contributing to the world. Well, he's going to clean up the evil and that could include me. So it's, it's both something that we celebrate and something that we also tremble at. But in the meantime, the Bible says over and over again that God is slow to anger. So when he is going to come in judgment and with his wrath to set all things right and bring peace to his creation, he is doing that slowly, he's patiently. All these things about what God is going to do in the coming of his kingdom is called eschatology. And so now the reason that I say that excommunication is eschatological is because Paul intends us to see excommunication as a preview of the final judgment. 
Okay, look at, look at how he talks. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there's a number of things that, you know, he says that I'm, you know, I'm present with you. It's, it's a similar root to when uh, it talks about the second coming, the parousia of Jesus, that he's going to come as a judge and he will be present here. And uh, he talks about I'm pronouncing judgment. He's talking about the day of the Lord. His whole imagination is thinking about that transition from this present age to the age to come when, when Jesus will come as the judge. And what he's saying is what the church is, is a preview of what's going to happen on that final day. And this is one of the things that the Bible often does. Is it takes what's going to happen in the future and brings it into the present. Or brings it the end of the story into the middle of the story. So, for example, the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus came and was, was present with us. Well, Jesus is going to come and be present with us at the end of the story. In the middle of the story, he came and was present with us. And in the gospel, Jesus died on the cross. The wrath of God came on Jesus. And if you've read about Jesus' crucifixion, it's like the sky went dark and the earth was shaken. It was all this picture of final judgment. The final judgment, the end of history, happened in the middle of history on Jesus. And then Jesus' body was raised from the dead. And the Bible says it's at the end of history that the righteous will be raised. But here in the middle of the story, Jesus is raised. And so this is something that the Bible is always doing, is taking the end of the story and bringing it into the middle and the Bible says that in the church, what we are is we are a preview of the end of the story. I've mentioned this before. Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are what? You are new creation. You are a piece of the age to come, the world that's renewed and made of peace, brought and stuck in the middle of the old world of the present age. And, um, and that's what we are. And so when Paul says the church makes a verdict on someone, they are getting a sense of what's going to come for them at the end of history and to awaken them, and yet it's coming in the middle while God is still being patient. They get a preview and say, you know, I need to turn around. I need to think about that God is my life, and do I have a share in the age to come? And if I follow Jesus, am I ready to face him? And, and so um, one of the things that excommunication does is it paints that picture for someone in the church. How do we as a church begin to view ourselves that way? I mean, do you view the church that way? That this is a piece of the, the world to come, the kingdom to come, stuck down in the That's what these people are that you're sitting among? Well, one of the ways that we learn to see ourselves as a church that way is the fourth thing that we learn about excommunication in this passage is that excommunication is sacramental. Okay, and by sacramental, the sacraments... Are, there are two sacraments that Jesus gave to his church, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what the sacraments are, are signs and seals of all that we have in Jesus. They're these physical signs that God is verifying to us that we have life in Jesus, we have forgiveness in Jesus, we have uh, salvation and eternal life, and we're going to be with him and share in his, his kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper is a verification, one of the ways that God is confirming to you that all those things are yours. And, um, and you see that actually the Lord's Supper is on the mind, on Paul's mind here in this passage. You see that in verse 6. 
Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now what's he talking about in there? Some of you recognize, he's talking about the Exodus story, right? When Israel was slaves in Egypt, and they, uh, they came out, they were slaves, and God was rescuing them out, and the night before they left Egypt, they celebrated the Passover meal, and they sacrificed, and, and, uh, and this was a sign of their liberation from, uh, from Israel. And, um, and the Passover was a meal that they kept every year. It was a reminder to them of what God had done for them. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus leads us in the new Exodus, like Israel was slaves to Egypt, we were slaves to sin, and Jesus has given us freedom from sin. And what did Jesus do? He took the elements of the Passover, and instead of them being about Egypt, he recentered them around himself, and he said, "This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you." He says, "I'm the new Exodus, and the Lord's Supper is the new Passover meal." And this is a meal that you eat over and over again to be reminded of and reassured that you've been set free from sin. And, you know, some of you have had a question. I know that some of you have asked me, one of the things we do in our church is we say that you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. And if you haven't asked me, maybe you wanted to ask me, why do we do that? And the reason is because the sacraments are covenant signs. They're a sign of a relationship. And it's very similar to a marriage. When two people are joined together and they fall in love and they have this emotional connection to one another, Christians have been insistent that you need to make that relationship permanent through a rite called a wedding. And you put a physical sign that is a verification of that relationship on the other person's fingers. And you say, these are my promises to you. And you wear the sign. And then once you're joined together... God has given us a way to renew our wedding vows, which is through making love. A husband and a wife commune with one another. They become one flesh over and over again. And every time a husband and wife make love, they are saying, I still, I'm still true to my wedding vows. I'm renewing my wedding vows. And what Christians have insisted upon is that you cannot have sex until you have gone through the rite of the sign, even if you're in love with each other. You need to go through the wedding first because it's a renewal of your wedding day. That's what the Lord's Supper is. is it defines who God's people are, that I've said I belong to the Lord and I've gone through the physical rite of baptism and now I'm renewing my baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so in the Old Testament, sorry, this is, I know it's a lot of information for you, in the Old Testament, it was a requirement that all the men in a family needed to be circumcised before a family could eat the Passover. Circumcision has been replaced with baptism, and now uh, and, and the Passover has been replaced by the Lord's Supper. So now we say that you must be baptized in order to eat the Lord's Supper. But the whole point of this, what does this have to do with excommunication, is that the sacraments mark who is in and who is out with Jesus. 
And that's one of the uncomfortable things. If you're visiting with us, maybe, you know, if someone's not a Christian and they visit with us, and they, you know, you sit and you sing with us and you listen to the sermon and you greet one another, it's all great until you come to the Lord's Supper. And it's like this one thing where I don't get to be a part of that. And that's because the Lord's Supper is saying to me, have I given myself to the Lord Jesus? Am I in with him yet? And it's when we have a robust view of the sacraments, we have a sense that who we are is we are Jesus' people. And this is how it's confirmed to us. And what Paul says is that a powerful thing happens when someone is excommunicated and they say they can't have this meal anymore. It's like a divorce. And so the reason why I think that's a powerful thing is that any of us who have experienced divorce at any place in our life, you know it is incredibly painful, miserable, mournful, it should be avoided at all costs. And that's how excommunication is. Some of you, when you saw the sermon title, you're like, excommunication? Oh, do we really have to listen to this? You should feel that way. It's not something we're excited about. It's something that's rare. It should be an exception. But this is the last question we have to ask. How can we trust a God who has people excommunicated? How can I trust a God who makes an institution, a church, that does that? Well, the answer is, we uniquely worship a God who has himself been excommunicated. Our God knows what it is to be cast out. Jesus, uh, was the wrath of God was poured on him. He was judged. The religious community rejected him. He was abandoned. And so the reason we can trust a God who sets us up is because he's even a God who knows what it is to be uh, excommunicated so we know that he loves us and even loves those who might be sent out from us because he wants to draw them back in. That is amazing. Even a God who calls us in extreme cases to communicate, we can still be sure is a great God of love. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for these hard words. Help us as a church to handle these words carefully. You tell us in other places to correct those who are caught in transgression with a spirit of gentleness. May our church be marked by grace and patience and gentleness and mercy. Would you also give us as a church courage to give the hard love to people that is sometimes necessary?